Hey there, and thank you for tapping into this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. If you were to meet me in any number of social situations, something you would be unlikely to learn about me during that typically short conversation is my deep love and study of theology. For really as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by faith systems. And as I was going to a Catholic middle school and junior high, I had a penchant for asking challenging questions about dogma, divinity, and the nature of divine judgment. This is all the while I'm checking out books from the library about Buddhism, reading The Art of War, and having long chats with a Buddhist monk that also frequented the same library. Before that, it was Greek mythology, and before that, it was Egyptian history and mysticism. Now, to be clear, I'm not a religious person of any kind. I find difficulty in appreciating dogma of any kind. I dislike zealot behavior and the chaotic suffering that frequently ensues. But some of the deepest, most enjoyable, and profoundly impacting conversations I've had are with people who are either religious ministers of some kind or people of deep faith. Why is that? Well, it might have something to do with my interest in what we are as beings, how we can transcend our base attributes, to say nothing of my deep regard for morality and moral systems. Religious thought is filled with riddles and ideas about how to get there, and I'm deeply indebted to theologians for many of my first principles. Like, for instance, if we were to spend enough time in a philosophical debate, I'm sure to have quoted Jesus several times, and find a lot of comfort these days in a quote of his about how we should be in the world, but not of it. And through the pursuit of a similar end, there tends to be a lot of overlapping interest between my personal pursuit and those of religious devotion. Perhaps that's why the conversation with my returning guest is so rich and dynamic. Having enjoyed her book and the interview we had previously, I asked Dr. Stewart to come back and have a free-flowing conversation with me. We talk about one of my favorite thoughts, if Jesus was Christ, along with questions if social media movements could be religion, where do we go as beings as we march down the technological path that we're set on, to say nothing about how to adapt to it now. And we end with a bit of a discussion about how we can, as people, transcend all of it. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Emory Professor of Theology and author of Black Women, Black Love, Dr. Diane Stewart. Enjoy. Real quick, before the episode begins, if you'd like to know about episode drops, check out our episode catalog, find ways to get us on different streaming platforms, or leave us a comment. Please reach out to us at bandwidthpodcast.com. Okay, well, thank you so much for taking the time with me. Um, so I ask a question when someone's a first-time guest, which is, what do you do that makes you happy? Um, and for a second one, I usually have a different, a different question of what have you done this week to make you happy? But I want to ask you something a little different. Um, and it's ironic that I just found out that your husband is a musician, because uh, I wanted to ask you, what type of music do you listen to that makes you happy? Oh, it's a great question. I love music. I listen to a wide range of music. Um, but when I think about music that makes me happy, 
I think about Caribbean music, particularly uh, Trinidadian soca and calypso and Jamaican reggae. I, I think that music makes me pretty happy. I also like um, African-American R&B from like the 1970s, 80s when I was growing up, like Earth, Wind and Fire, um, you know, Bootsilla, and, um, you, you name it, Parliament and Funkadelic, Ohio Players, um, you know, um, oh, who are my two women with the guitars again? A Taste of Honey, um, SOS Band. So I, 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 th those were, you know, those were the people, um, who sang car, car wash, uh, Rolls Royce, mm -hmm. you know, those were the kinds of um, musical styles I heard growing up in a Northeastern um, area of the United States. So, yeah. Yeah, those, that, that era is like unparalleled and music that'll get you to dance and smile. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love Parliament. That's actually, Parliament is actually what got me into funk music. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, like I've always like gone in and out of suffering from depression, like lifelong. And the mm. one thing I learned early in life to help, like as like a method to get me out of it was every day, wake up and listen to James Brown. Cause like, I realized I, oh, like yeah. by the end of a couple of songs, like you can't, you, you just start, it's, it affects your mood and the way your outlook yes. on life. Definitely. Yeah, that's great. Definitely. What, uh, is there any Trinidadian artists that you like a lot? Oh yeah. They're, um, one that comes to mind right now is, um, or two, singing Sandra. And I wonder if she, I think she's, I feel like she might have passed away actually. Um, and I love um, Ella Andal. And one of the reasons I'll, I decided to focus on women. I also like um, David Rudder. Um, there's some other kind of local Calypsonians who never, who, who might not be as big, um, but the, the traditional tiger was also very well known. I just really, really love um, Calypso. And um, Ella Andal, I really like because she came out of the Yoruba Orisha practicing uh, religious communities, which um, is a, a religion in Trinidad that um, emerged because of the presence of Yoruba descendants there, Yoruba people from West um, Africa, particularly Nigeria and Benin. And um, I did a lot of research on uh, that group and I'm actually publishing a book on it um, next year, early next year, by summer for sure, it, it will be out. And so she is a remarkable singer that comes from one of the major temples of that tradition. And um, her work is just incredible incredibly beautiful, inspiring. Her voice is just incredibly unique and um, powerful. And um, I think in a way she brought the theology and the ethics and the praise music of her tradition, um, you know, the praise poetry, she brought it um, to the public in a, in a modern and modernized it in a sense, right? So it would be appealing to many young people and to a much broader audience. And I just think she's incredibly innovative and creative. So I, I love her work. And that's Ella Andal? Ella Andal, yes. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm going to have to check her out after this. I was hoping you would mention somebody that is, I wasn't expecting quite that depth. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So, so she brought like almost like a, like a theological type of construct of music into mainstream. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Huh. Kind of a, another callback to something like kind of James Brown with more gospel-y type of music into mainstream. It's Indeed. A, an analog, if you will. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What was, what was the theological tradition that you said that she was? In Trinidad, they, they now call it the Orisha tradition. But earlier, before the 1980s, they typically refer to the tradition as Shango. In my and that's the name of one of the most powerful deities in the in the tradition, or Orisha. They're called Orisha. It's almost, uh, it's it's not ideal to totally use Western categories to to name the powers. A lot of Trinidadians refer to them as powers. They're forces of nature. They are representatives of the high god um, Olodumare, which is a genderless entity, um, you know, neither male nor female. Um, and, um, and so now you will hear people talk about it as Trinidadian Orisha, which is also the name of the group of powers that worshipers venerate. So for example, when you go to Cuba and you look at the tradition that most people call Santeria is also known as Lukumi, um, they also venerate Orisha. And it would be the same in Nigeria. They venerate the Orisha. So in Trinidad, the tradition right now is just called Orisha, Orisha religion. But it comes from the Yoruba um, peoples of West Africa. And so she does a lot of music um, praising the deities and some of the ritual um, um, invocation music. She's brought that to her albums and it just does incredible, amazing work. That sounds awesome. I can, I can, I can pull up some of it if you want to hear it and just let you hear a little bit of it. Yeah, I would love that. I think you might get pulled if I do that, but I would love that though. I'm going to definitely run to that. If you send me anything, I'll put in the show notes tracks. Yeah, absolutely. And you can also, you can find her, you can hear her music on YouTube easily. Yeah, yeah, definitely send me some of that, and I'll I'll post some of them. Okay. What what is the uh, tradition entail? Like, what is like the structure of the, and also why why is the the word tradition and not religion? Yeah, no, it's a good question. A lot of people. Well, first of all, let me say this. Um, I'm a scholar of religion, um, and so one of the things I I tell my students often is that religion is. We, we can't see religion as some sort of innate term that, um, that just dropped from the sky from some God or something. Um, we as scholars created that term in many respects in, in terms of the way we deploy it today to organize our research, to understand the phenomena that we study. And so in many respects, it would be very um, reasonable to call it a scholarly folk term. It's our folk term that we have um, um, created and defined and deployed to organize our ideas. People don't think of themselves so much as practicing religion. They think of themselves as living um, out either their faiths or their, their, their um, norms and principles and um, axiological um, orientations. That's how people understand themselves to, to be in the world, navigating the world and wrestling with questions of life and death and suffering and joy and reward and ecstasy, all these things, right? So we impose this term religion on them. And what, what happened is because religion, as it got defined in my field, became associated with quote unquote, revealed religions of the book right? Religious traditions where we can find a written text and 
monotheistic religions, especially. And there became a kind of hierarchy of stratification of religions where quote unquote nature religions or religions that would be associated with indigenous populations were always seen at the, at the bottom as the base. And in many respects, might not have even been seen as religions from some people. So many of them say, yeah, you're right. We're not, we're not this monotheistic institutional church oriented tradition. We have ways of life. We practice or we live out what some people might call a faith. We live out these norms and customs and ethics and beliefs and orientations. And so some people really don't want to be um, associated with that term religion, those who still hold to indigenous African traditions. Now, I do use it as a scholar and in my writing. I do. I acknowledge that, but I use it because my, my perspective is that if I don't, I, then African religions never end up at the table of discourse. Right. I, in my field as a religionist, I need to say that the phenomena you study, revelation, um, sacred texts, they could be oral, they can be they can be scriptural. And we do have some scriptural sacred texts of African religion. So the idea that there are none is just not true. Um, but all of the sacred texts for the most part began as oral traditions, right? So when we're talking about whether it's um, some sort of revelation, whether that's in scripture or other ways that re revelation occurs, um, some sort of um, worship life or prayer life or some sort of a communal ritual, these traditions have that, right? Some idea of powers that are invisible, these traditions have that. All the things, all these phenomena that um, we associate with the monotheistic religions, they have that. But they also have insight into how human beings um, um, have come to navigate the world and um, wisdoms and prescriptions for how to do that. And um, how to do that in a way that I think are much more environmentally um, uh, conscientious, much more conscientious of other forms of life than many Christian and other monotheistic traditions um, have become today. And so all the more reason I think that they have something to contribute to the solving of problems that we humans create in the world um, and other problems that we experience in, in this world. So for me, it's important to say these are religious traditions that need to be at the table of discourse. Um, and so, but I acknowledge and recognize the limitations of religion as an analytic, an analytic lens or category that we as scholars use to organize our research and our ideas about the phen phenomena we study. What an incredibly insightful way to put everything that you just said that was there's so many things i would love to to touch upon with that um i think that, that that's a really because one of the questions i wanted to ask you was what how would you define religion so i'm glad that we kind of fell into that as a scholarly term um in order to way to like define um yeah. one of the things i think is interesting in kind of the time that we look left and right now is how much terms take on a life of their own, which they do. That's just how language works. But because of the buildup of, um, I'm going to use progress in quotes 
because I'm using it in like a scholarly way, perhaps, where mm-hmm. it, the progress as we've defined it through the industrial revolution. Because I, I mean, on the lens of you know human innovation, it's been progress. But I think if you look at other dimensions, it's it hasn't been very progressive. Um, and if you look at it from that lens, we words like religion, we think they inherently come with so much baggage that we often forget what it means. Um, and I think talking about how it's religion is something that, that we impose upon something that looks just like our cultural practice that we came through, which is interesting. Um, also, it's interesting because, you know, Christianity as a tradition or a practice or, or what have you was mostly oral for a long time. And it wasn't until it got to Alexandria in which it hit a university system, like the original university system, that it started getting documented. And then once it was documented, it started getting put into pamphlets and those would get moved around. And all of a sudden the tradition of writing things down that led up to Nicaea and what you take it from there um, is really unique to the culture in which it existed in. Where, you know, perhaps if, you know, means of writing existed, you know, and that type of cultural practice, it, we could have saw more like that. Like we certainly see it in Asia and China, you know, what we, you know, the region we, that China is now. Um, with Confucianism, Taoism, legalism, um, all of those kind of came with a very similar emergent track as what we were talking about with Christianity. Um, so that's really fascinating. Indeed. Um, if you had anything to say there, go, you can go ahead. I didn't want to cut you off. Well, it, 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 it's just interesting because what one of the reasons that my field even emerged, and and in a way, I straddle two fields. You know, I was specifically trained um, as a Christian theologian, particularly post-Enlightenment Christian theology with an emphasis on global liberation theologies and special emphasis on Black and womanist and Caribbean um, theologies. And so um, that's one area, but I also straddle religious studies and religious studies, it really does grow out of um, theology in many respects. The earliest scholars of religion were theologians, um, philologists and anthropologists. And um, the th- they were theologians turned phenomenologists. And what's really interesting about what you just said is one of the reasons the field really emerged out of this um, the study of philology is because Europeans were exploring and going into different regions of the world and encountering in parts of what we would call now South Asia, encountering scripts, religious scripts written by people who were, they were not Christian. Well, they have writing, so they must be developed in some way. What does this mean? And they have all these different ideas than we have, but yet they're polytheists. And what does all of this mean? And so literally that was one branch of the founding of the field of religious studies, trying to figure out how the, the these European men, as they were, should relate to these others that they were encountering that seemed to throw off their understanding of them and their religiousness and relationship to the rest of the world. So it's, it's, it's a very, what you're saying is very important. It's, it's absolutely true. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so there was two questions and I'll, I'll ask the second one when it, it was about the question in the conversation. There's two questions that I held back from asking you last time that when I told my wife after I talked with you, I was really looking forward to talking to you last time. Uh, she's like, you got to just do it. So one of them, I'm going to reframe it. Do you think that Jesus saw himself as Christ? 
Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. And I'll say why. Now, if you're asking, do I think that he saw himself as the Messiah? I mean, that might be maybe a better word to use. And it's interesting. Now, it's been a long time since I've done biblical studies, but boy, I did a, quite a bit of biblical studies when I was in graduate school and, um, and I loved it. It was just absolutely incredible and fascinating. It was just, it was my favorite area, believe it or not, even though I focused on theology. And I remember very well studying the messianic secret in the gospel of Mark that Jesus, you know, never wanted to be identified as the Messiah. So, okay, so there are interesting ways to look at this. There's a liberal theologian, Adolf von Harnack from the um, uh, 19th, early 20th century, who, um, who says of the, of the gospels, and I agree with this, I really do like this analysis, that they are not eyewitness accounts of Jesus's activities. They are evangelical documents. We often think of evangelicalism as it's risen, you know, post the period of the Bible. But in a sense, they are evangelical documents written from people who were not witnesses to what Jesus was doing, but had received the oral tradition of what Jesus was doing and eventually decided to write them down as they were trying to persuade particular communities experiencing particular socio-historic, cultural, economic, um, spiritual um, experiences um, to um, take hold of this quote-unquote good news, right? So when I think about whether or not I believe Jesus thought he was the Messiah, I'm still going to say no. When you said, when, I'm, I'm still going to say no. Um, I don't think so. I'm not saying I know so, but I, I, I'm going to tell you, I don't think so. And, and this gives you an idea of how uneasy it is for scholars in this field. And I'm not a specialist. Um, you know, you, you, should, you should bring a biblical scholar on and I can give you the names of quite a few that you could talk to. But I'm still going to say no, because um, what I think Jesus was, was a Hebrew man of deep, deep, deep consciousness about um, how human beings should orient themselves and perhaps they reorient themselves in his culture to the divine, to um, Yahweh, to the, the God of his people um, in such a way that attended to the poor, the marginalized, the, um, the unheard, the suffering, I really believe that that was Jesus's mission. Um, I really do believe that it was fundamentally a mission to his people um, and that people named him the Messiah. And he, you know, there's this so-called secret about it, or, you know, and he would say things like, your faith has made you whole. He would never attribute certain powers to himself, but perhaps power in the faith relationship between people and Yahweh, right? People and their God. And so I think he had deep, deep, profound God consciousness to use, you know, a contemporary, or an English word, God consciousness. Um, I think he had a very powerful and destabilizing mission. He upset 
certain kinds of social arrangements and status quo um, behaviors and practices, um, you know, and, and, and did that in a way um, that wasn't about, you know, um, kind of revolutionary revolt, but still did that kind of work. And so I'm gonna say no. I think what happened, JR, was that after his death, his followers were, they, they were destroyed. They were flabbergasted. They were, I think, different ones, probably had different beliefs about him as he was living and moving toward death, um, following him in this movement. And I think that they, they didn't know how to cope. How do we cope with the fact that the man that we believe is the Messiah, the person who's going to say, how do we cope with what to do now? Um, and so we begin to get um, the emergence of a theological perspective, a believing community um, that then grows through the apostolic work of uh, um, someone like Paul. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I often say uh, to my students, Jesus was not a Christian, he was a Hebrew. And if he's looking at what Christian churches are doing now, let's say he's looking like as an anthropologist, he's like, wow, that's interesting. That's bizarre. You know, I also have to remind my students that he wasn't a white Hebrew. <laughs> he wasn't a white Hebrew. He was a, he was a brown man um, in some regard. Um, and so um, he's thinking, how strange, what is that flat? wafer thing that they're eating or what is that piece of bread right he was he grew up in a in a community where people took animals to the temple to sacrifice right he you know it, it's it's a totally different religion and what's so interesting when you think about this comparatively think about comparative theology religion when you look at the religious culture of the hebrew people in the bible um, even Jesus had a last supper. How did they have that supper? They had to sacrifice a lamb. They had to do something to have that supper, right? So you, even people like to separate, well, that's Old Testament. Now we're in the New Testament. Jesus was still living in the time when sacrificing animals at the temple was very normative and it, he, it, it was his religious culture. And so um, it's interesting to think about that because one of the reasons I think so many colonized people um, found refuge and found some sort of um, identity in the Bible is because the religious culture of the Bible in many ways aligns with some of their religious cultures, including people of African descent, right? I mean, it's not so far from a number of things that they're doing in their own indigenous religious cultures. So that's the irony to me about the kind of sola Christianity, only Christianity um, is the legitimate religion that we often um, hear preached as a part of Christian evangelicalism. But no, I think that they had to make meaning. I think that they were believing he was the Messiah. And I think they had to make meaning out of his death and it becomes played in a certain way. But there's something that's fascinating though, JR, about thinking about this. And I, you know, it's been a while, so I can't tell you a lot about this book right now, but I was talking about it with my students. It's um, Paradise by um, Rita Nakashima Brock and Rebecca Parker, don't quote me on this. Um, 
saving paradise, saving paradise, sorry, um, how Christianity traded love of this world for a crucifixion. Yes, Rebecca Parker and Rita Nakashima Brock. And the reason I bring this up is because, and this, this is something that I find in my students all the time, most Christians I meet, and most of my students, they only know how to understand Christianity, Jesus's Christness, right? Because we talk about in my field, the historical Jesus versus the Christ of faith or a melding of the two. They are not the same from a theological perspective. Um, you really do have to separate. There is the historical Jesus, which is a person who lived and, and had a ministry and was crucified and died. There is the Christ of faith, which is a profession. It's, this is a faith statement. It is a statement about this person, Jesus. This Jesus is the Christ of my faith. This Jesus is my Messiah. This Jesus is my Savior. It's a, that's a faith confession, right? So to talk about Christ is a very different thing than talking about the historical Jesus, um, which is kind of related to the question you asked me. So the reason I brought this book up to my students recently is because one the argument is quite fascinating. And I had faced this argument in, um, in the works of one of my favorite womanist theologians and teachers, Dr. Dolores Williams. I mean, she had a similar argument, but she frames it differently. But um, Parker and Brock, who, and I know Brock well, she was one of my mentors in, a, um, in my earlier career, um, argue that for the first um, like thousand years of, of, of Christianity, we have this image of paradise as central. It's in the art, it's in the teachings, it's everywhere. There's barely any kind of emphasis on the crucifixion, which, which is, you know, is what gets us to this Christ of faith, right? It's what gets us to the Messiah role, right? That he's resurrected as Messiah. Jesus saves us um, through that death. Right, and, and that resurrection is proof that there is salvation, there is life after death, right? So, so Brock and, and Parker argue that we really get this emphasis on the crucifixion once we get to the Crusades. And, and we often forget because of the last, you know, thousand years of history, we often forget or you know, 700, 800 years of history, that Christianity is not a European, you know, Euro-Western religion. It's not a white religion. It was a conquering religion in Europe. It destabilized the indigenous religions of Europe. We have hundreds of years of the persecution of traditional healers and um, and 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 um, doctors that people you know would call witches or what have you, and wizards and. Um, you know, through the um, through the um, um, uh, witch, um, I'm sorry, through the um, Inquisition and the witch trials, etc. So they argue that it's with the Crusades, it's with the conquering of Europe's spirituality that Christianity shifts from a focus on paradise. I mean, they literally go through all of this iconography of the first few hundred years of Christianity. And they're saying there's pictures of saints and Jesus walking through fields and everything is glorious and there are no crosses, virtually none, no crucifixions. And it comes in with this army, this kind of militant notion of of, 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 of converting the heathen. Um, and it becomes, you must convert it, be converted away from your sinful life through the death of Jesus 
into salvation. And so they argue that this is not a mainstay from the earliest days of Christianity. It's really, really fascinating. So when people, you know, sometimes depending on what people focus on, those who are we call it high Christology. Those who believe strongly in this Christ of faith, like, you know, Christ saves me from my sins. I'm a converted uh, person of faith. I, I, the blood of Jesus saves me, you know, by the grace of God, I'm saved. That's a high Christology. You know, the more liberal theologies that focus on the humanity of Jesus, what Jesus did when he walked on earth, his ministry, that would be considered a low Christology more of a focus on that historical Jesus. So I just raised that because I, I just think it's an interesting um, theological um, contribution that they make that might help people, you know, rethink these categories and rethink, um, you know, what is considered to be Christian um, versus what might be considered to be heretical, if you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely. Um, and to that point about conquering, like many of the, tradition, the traditions that you pointed to, like the Eucharist or... Uh, the imagery of uh, bunnies at Easter or mm -hmm. uh, Christmas trees at Christmas were all taken from pagan traditions. And I mean, like the, you can, you can kind of go on from there, but there's a lot of the infusion of it. Um, and I actually got way, got to this idea from, by way of uh, thinking about like the linguistics of English that I feel like mm -hmm. English is really the truly first globalized language because this, the structure of it is, you know, old, you know, it's, it's Germanic, but it has mostly words and grammar from Latin and the way that it's able to just kind of like incorporate ideas or, or, or words or structures into the language. Um, and in a lot of ways, I mean, in even more ways, actually, Christianity is the first globalized religion to keep using that term um, with how it's able to kind of deposit itself into other places or incorporate it or, you know, even bring it into the fold. Um, my grandmother has done a lot of work with uh, Native American reservations, mm -hmm. and she visited one in, I think it was North Dakota, um, and they had a church there. They were, they were Christians, very strong Christian faith. Uh, there, there's a big, um, oh, I can't think of his name. Cynthia Ann Parker is his mother, but there was a Native American, his last name is Parker's, and the first name is eluding mm -hmm. me, who was a big uh, individual who brought Native American Christianity kind of into the fold. Um, so they had this Christian church there, but at the Stations of the Cross, instead of it being the traditional white Jesus and uh, Roman soldiers, it was a Native American individual as mm -hmm. Jesus and Union soldiers as the instead of the Romans, which is interesting because once again, it kind of goes to appropriation and understanding and being able to see their suffering in the eyes of this Christ figure. Um, and you, you, you poked at a lot of the the setup that I asked you with that, with the way you went around with it. Cause I think, you know, Jesus as a, a philosopher, if you will, um, and his teachings are, are quite different from the dogma of what is kind of placed onto it. Um, and, you know, if you bring in religion and state, which is ironic because America tried to separate it again, but if you do that, it's quite powerful because uh, it gives everybody, you know, a, a shared understanding of reality, if you will. Um, and it's almost the way that I've always kind of, the, the place I've landed, let me put it that way, is that Jesus is as an individual was a philosopher speaking to his period of his time, trying to talk to his people and kind of understand the world and bring it around. Um, I think also, if you want to study Jesus in that light, you should probably study John the Baptist, because all of a sudden, a lot of things start making more sense, like mm -hmm. why he decided to go talk, you know, and, to, and step out of 
Nazareth um, or Judea generally. And um, the other part of it is, you know, Christianity is almost more of a religion because of Paul than it is because of Jesus himself, right? Like Paul is the one who all of a sudden started writing to everybody and talking about this as a dogma and elevating him to this type of status, um, which, you know, um, I talked with this professor, uh, Felipe Fernandez Armesto, and he's um, a historian. Um, He didn't like the way that I put this, but I'm still going to say it that way. Uh, I think Europe, because of the geography and the kind of cultural um, vacuum that was both created and then, uh, you know, before Rome and then after Rome and kind of the the Greeks kind of even set it up for this to even occur um, and the friction therein of all of these cultural groups um, and, you know, kind of collapsing, it brought in a religion that can transform and emerge and kind of keep gathering different parts of paganism into it, into the fold. But then also it made it quite easy for them when they went externally and decided to a conquering world to do things. Um, it's been several years since I studied this, but there was an edict um, that one of the popes, I think it might've been Pope Leonardo, uh, during the time of colonization, where he said, essentially, if you get go there and you find people and they're not Christians, yep. you can do whatever you want. Yes. Um, and mm-hmm. that, that kind of give that gave them the, you know, causes ballet to, to do anything from there on out. Um, so it became more of a tool and a framework that its echoes from that are still kind of to be seen. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I just feel like, were you in some of my classes? And I thought, <laughs> my goodness, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I pretty much associate Christianity um, and its, its early beginnings with Paul. You know, I think um, Jesus had a, a mission and a ministry, and I think Paul instituted a church based on his theology, his understanding of what that mission was um, and its extension into um, the global regions as as he understood it. Um, But I I think you're right. I think we have to um, face the truth, the fact, no matter how much we want to sanitize Christianity. And it's so funny. We always accord, Christians always accord um, Christianity this courtesy of separating the bad acts that people do from Christianity, right? Like, that's not the real Christianity. And as a theologically trained scholar, I have a lot of sympathy for that in the sense that the goal and the role of the theologian is to clarify the meaning of the faith for their present generation. And that clarification is constantly needed because Christianity, Christians would say, humans are sinful and constantly messing up and messing up and forgetting and forgetting what they're called to be as church, as ecclesia, um, as followers of Jesus the Christ. Um, So I'm sympathetic to that. Theologians have a right and a responsibility to say, no, this is not my tradition. This is not what Um, Christianity is about, right? But from a historical perspective, and I do a lot of work that involves archives, historical archives and ethnography, I'm kind of consider myself a transdisciplinary scholar um, because I use ethnographic methods and historical methods a lot in my my research. Um, And so from a historical perspective, we have to acknowledge that the, 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 the lineage that you just laid out there is one of the most dominant and prominent lineages of Christianity. And that is Christianity. 
historically, that is Christianity. We can't say that it's not Christianity. So I couldn't agree more. And in fact, my training, my focus, my purpose has been wrestling with that history and that lineage as a person of African descent, who as you know, we hear this now coming out of Africa and Asia and the Caribbean, who um, are now the people left with the Bible in no land. Um, and so the saying is that you hear is when the European missionaries came, they had the Bible and we had the land. And they asked us to close our eyes and pray with them. And when we looked up, they had the land and we had the Bible. You know, so I think, I, I, I don't know how any, anybody can deny that colonialism, imperialism, is it, it, it's in the DNA in some respects of Christianity as we've come to know it in the modern world. Yeah, there's um there's an underground rapper. I don't know how underground he is these days anymore, but um he has his 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 album. It's a EP, I think. Is a track on it. It's called like the Third World. It's a it's a great mm -hmm. song. It's he's kind of vulgar, but it's if you get past that as poetry, I'm sure you would still very much enjoy it. But he has a line in there about how they, they, he's from Peru. Um, and if you actually listen to the song, it's actually a really great shorthand of the colonization of Peru, which is fascinating. Mm. Um, but he says in there that we pray to the gods of our conquerors. And like that is some of the most evangelical, some of the most devout parts of the world are, you know, the Americas. Um, and that really, that is a culture that is in a scar in some ways that is still active in their lives. Um, in Mexico, it's in incredibly fascinating if you ask me, because there's more of the indigenous death cults. Mm -hmm. uh, like I think Santa Muerte. Santa, Santa Muerte. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I've read a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to bring up Mexico. I did study abroad in Mexico as a senior my last year of college. I, I went on two study abroad programs and they totally changed my life. They were I, I just don't even know what my life would have been like if I didn't do those study abroad programs. It just, they had such an Im important significance for everything I've been doing um, since I went on both of those study abroad programs. It's incredible. And Mexico um, was fascinating. And this is something I will never forget. Now, this was a study abroad program run by a philosopher in the religion and philosophy department. I went to Colgate University and I was an English major actually. Um, but um, Professor Marilyn Thee took this um, group and we were there to study Latin American feminist theology. So I was thrilled and excited and it was an amazing experience. We had family stays. I went to the Comunidades de Base or the base Christian community meetings with my mother, my home, or my uh, family stay mom. It was, it was an education that I can never ever even explain because we weren't in the university system. We were taught by the mothers of the disappeared. We were taught by the activist feminist theological mothers who were just grassroots politically engaged, um, spiritually theologically engaged women. It was incredible. But we also did tours and things like that. And one of the tours we did was of old, the oldest colonial churches in Mexico City. And I remember we visited one city. I have a diary. I, it's in my chest. I haven't looked at it in years. I should take it out. So I have the names of all those things. But this was like 30 years ago at this point, right? Um, uh, maybe, maybe 25, 20, 
seven years ago or so, maybe not 30, I'm not that old. <laughs> um, and, um, and so I can't remember the name of the church, but it was a huge, huge, the hugest cathedral in Mexico City. And I remember the last name of the professor, Professor Lopez, who was leading this, he was from the, the university. And um, we go in and people are on, you know, on like seated on the floor and they're doing their devotions with lit candles. It's really um, kind of um, very hollow and this, um, there's not a lot of light, just the candlelight. It's a very peaceful and sacred feeling. And um, he, we start seeing parts of the architectural structure that's crumbling. And, and I'm looking and I'm seeing these mask-like figures on these iron poles. And you can tell that there were pillars around them and that they had been crumbling. And you could be, and Professor Lopez told us that what was happening was when the conquistadors were forcing the indigenous population to construct these edifices, these large churches, they were secretly constructing and placing images of their local gods um, inside the pillars. So what that meant was when they were forced to go to church on Saturdays or whenever to worship, or when they went on to do their devotions, they were praying to their own ancestral deities. That was so powerful. So I love what you just shared about the Peruvian um, underground um, hip hop artists. What I, what I also want to share, and, and I'm sure he knows this just as well, not without resistance and rebellion, right? Even though we have to acknowledge that the colonial imposition of Christianity is real and has happened in um, many locations throughout the global South, um, there was and continues to be resistance in some form. And I love telling that story of, of seeing these amazing, incredible indigenous masks in the pillars as the pillars have been dis disintegrating, revealing the, 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 what's at the heart of their religious tradition and their religious devotion, at least the, you know, the peoples who created them. And I, I was just, I, that was just incredible. Just an education that, you know, it was just amazing. I've never forgotten it. That's really cool. That's like very subtle. I like that. Um, and what you said about the resistance is super important. Um, and like, just because the audience, maybe in proximity, might be able to uh, have a, a, an easier connection with Mexico, uh, I'll stay on that. But it, this is what the statement I'm about to make is more pronounced in Mexico, but it exists in all of the Americas. Um, and that's, you know, in Mexico, some of the problem with the cartels and the violence that's happening there is because of this deep rooted connection to resistance. And the resistance originally, like the people who were like the bandits and the, and they actually called them insurgents that got them, you know, got Mexico independence from Spain is very reminiscent to the cartels now, um, as well as the spiritual resistance. That's why you see so much of the cartels and death cults like Sinaloa is a great example where they have this death cult that has arisen within the, the culture of the of the cartel and then is now in the proximity of the families or, you know, what have you. Um, because once again, it goes back to that resistance and this, you know, uh, culture that has been constantly persecuted in one way or the other. And, you know, in some ways now, you know, the government of Mexico is just the, the newest, you know, status quo that of in this long series of, of acts that keep the song that doesn't end in a way. You know, it's, it's a, very nuanced analysis that you're bringing. And it's so important because 
um, what we often see, right? We, we often see and are socialized to accommodate the norms of a society as it's been constructed by the winners, by the rulers. And what will happen, and we see this with the rise of so-called gangs, they're families. They're families uh, that love one another, right? Or people who've been ostracized um, from the approved um, families that those who rule society um, establish, who've been ostracized from the love of families, they find them in gangs. So it, it's really, I, I think what you're saying is really important because um, any phenomenon that we study, we can look at it as antisocial, but we have to ask ourselves, how might it be still providing for the needs, the basic needs and desires of human beings? How might it be doing that when a society locks them out of resources that they could and should have? So that's a, that's a really, really great point because um, even though there's a way that the formation of these kinds of groups and units tend to wreak havoc on their own people because those are the people that they have access to. You know, the people who are the real enemies, the people who are holding them down and are pressing them, they have bodyguards, they have, they have buildings, they have all kinds of protection. They can't get to them. And so let's face it, people usually construct intimate violence and other kinds of violence against the people that they know well. It's almost like I am mimicking, right? When you look at the cartels or you look at gangs or you look at, I am mimicking the ethics the organization, the behavior of the wider society. They sanitize it, they normalize it, they make it acceptable there. But I am mimicking those things in the arenas that society has carved out where I can mimic them. I am literally mimicking your values. I am, I am putting your values to play at work, but I'm doing it within a context where I have been allowed to do it. This is the only context in which I can do it. The non-approved context, the somewhat antisocial context. And yet we never raise the question about how normative society, how approved institutions of society might be also producing a kind of antisocial reality as well. You know, so I, I, I truly appreciate your, um, your um, analysis. And it's interesting. I've, I've read a little bit about Santa Muerte, not in a while though, but when I think of it, when I think of, um, uh, you know, of what, 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 you know, what happens and what, what, what goes on in this tradition, we see similar kinds of phenomena among people um, who are suffering, who are struggling with deprivation, um, people who, um, who are treading um, a line between survival and um, vulnerability to impending death, right? To death, where death is like on their heels, whether it's because of drug activity or whether it's because they're just black in an anti-black world, for example, or they're uh, Mexican in an anti-brown world or Mexican-American in an anti-brown world. Um, that somehow people are going to, you know, in my field, sometimes they say people make gods as much as gods make people. Um, people are going to find the extraordinary power that they need um, to 
reassure them, to provide the internal and external mechanisms that they rely on to navigate this world. They're gonna do it. And um, if that means cults of, of death, then that's what it means. People are gonna find those extraordinary powers. They're going to um, do what even someone like uh, Tom Hanks does in that movie, Castaway, where the ball becomes like this, this person, you know, this, um, this other entity that has powers that keeps company with him, that becomes his family, that becomes his deity, his object of worship, his, his playmate, his everything, right? People are going to do that. Yeah. Um, I wonder, I had this thought when you were saying that. And then I also, I want to go back to people make gods as gods make people. Cause I totally, I almost lost that train of thought. Cause I like that so much. Yeah. Um, but it's almost as if I wonder um, if when we are looking at these type of scenes, if we ask the question, where's the love? Because that might lead us to understanding gangs, why this type of behavior comes in the worshiping of someone or something or any of that um and i think your point about reflection and how gangs are often a reflection of the environment in which they're in and the impression that they're in is so spot on because i mean like we like to think that gangs are chaotic even like street gangs and you know chicago well i think street gangs in inner cities is a little different just because of the youth the young, the, the fracturing of how many gangs there are and how young people are, it's the different culture has emerged. But typically like organized crime, if you want to use that label, um, is incredibly efficient. Like if you really start diving in, like they have, I mean, to the point where they will like, you know, encourage people to go get, go to the military and they will like, you know, help, you know, there'd be a, some type of feedback and guidance as to, no, no, you shouldn't go for that type of job. You should go for this type of job because you'll get this type of training that we could use. And then when you get out, you can come back in and you'll do this down to like fiduciary means of efficiency. Wow. Like it is, or, or even the way they look at commodities, like um, Yon Grillo, I've had him on the podcast as well. He has impeccable books about the Mexican cartels. Mm -hmm. um, and he really goes into a lot of the economics of it, of even the mm -hmm. economics of murder. And murder for hire um and like you know some of these these hitmen and how what you know the, the type of ethos and religion they take on because they know they're only going to live you know a short life of access um so they they kind of accept it that they know that their you know uh, time is going to come someday um and all of it that kind of comes out of it is i i wonder now and this is something i'm going to try to apply is asking where is the love because you know a lot of these people are destitute um even people who end up you know going and killing somebody for sometimes even just 20 dollars, depending on the location um you know they're doing it because they are you know suffering they are you know forgotten about and there's a cheapness to the, to the life around them there's a cheapness to, to the love um that all of a sudden it starts making those type of things to us or to more stable or more comforted individuals as extreme but if you try to look at it, the spectrum of the bounds in which they're playing in, they're grasping for love, even though they're That's reaching right. for a pistol. Yeah, well said. Um, I, I'll just say, you know, amen. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it, it, it can seem sappy, it can seem idealistic, but in reality, I mean, love is essential for us to survive. It just is. And for us to 
um, to live in a way that's not predatory and non-aggressive. And, and I tell you, I've been thinking about this for quite a while. And I've been thinking about this in part because of my study of religion, but I also have a, a real interest in um, kind of um, archaeology and, you know, archaeological biology. And I, I just have an interest in, in um, like early forms of humanity and what human beings were doing and evolution. And I just have an interest in that. Not that I read widely in it, but I anything that comes on um, on the television that will really, like a real very well-informed kind of show or documentary, I watch it. I try to read little articles here and there, um, kind of layperson's articles. I, I'm not trying to read like major scholarly articles and this stuff but I've and I did do a little dabbling around in cognitive science of religion as well um, a field that I really find fascinating find interesting and so I've been thinking I remember when uh, one of the Yoruba um, scholars and priests that I really respect and love he's world renowned his name is Dr. Wande well his name is Wande Abimbala he's a professor retired professor now um, and his son Kola Abimbala are also phenomenal you might want to invite Kola on this show or both of them oh my goodness they I are incredible that. but Dr. Abimbala would say um, you know in the Yoruba tradition peace is not a given Peace is not spread out like a mat. You have to actually work for peace. He says chaos is the order of the day. And he says, when you step out of your car, you are literally killing like 50 ants right there. Literally killing 50 ants. And literally, JR, from the, how do I keep weeds out of my lawn to stepping out of my car and killing 50 ants? I just, you know, it's not some, some great observation, we all know this, but I just kind of came to say to myself some years ago, life is predatory. It just is. It's predatory. You know, you, you watch these shows about the animal kingdom and just see how they seek their prey. And it is predatory. You look at, you know, um, issues of, you know, sexual violation of one another, just predatory. And, and, and also based on what I've learned about cognitive science, um, and particularly cognitive science of religion, but and how our brains um, adapted across, you know, large periods of history in terms of evolution, they adapted to, in some ways, kind of be prone towards certain prejudices. Like it's, in other words, in order to, to, to survive, right, and to thrive within our own social group or social unit, there's always another. There's always an enemy because because if it, first of all, the enemy could be a huge animal that if you can't, uh, you know, fl fly away quickly enough, you could be dinner, right? You could be dead. So it's a survival mechanism in many respects, but it has led to certain ways that our brain functions. And I I sometimes wonder, it just seems like prejudice and um the construction of us them you know you know me or myself and i and the other um as kind of enemy as someone to be suspicious of it seems as if it's built into the hardwiring of our brain in terms of our need to survive so we we already are at a at, at a disadvantage for those of us who have idealistic understandings of how to kind of unite humanity and how to create balance and fairness and equilibrium in human relationships. We're working against, a great, we're always somehow rallying ourselves in social groups.
animals because we survive as groups. We're social animals. We need the comfort and the company that's part of love of others to, to survive. Look at, you know, Tom Hanks again on Castaway. I got to create another person because I can't live alone. I can't be alone. So I think that, that we're already facing an uphill battle. So I think you're right. If we don't talk about it, if we don't reflect on it, if we don't practice it, these technologies of love that womanist um, scholar Lily Mapayan talks about, if we don't, if we don't focus on this and ask this question everywhere where we see um, harm and injury and what we would consider to be antisocial behavior and structures, if we don't ask that question we're not gonna solve it, we're not. I, I fundamentally agree. But then love has to be also structured in the systems and arrangements that govern our lives. It has to be structured. And the question is, how do we do that? You know, how do we structure love in, in that way? Yeah, so I, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm really excited where this went. I wasn't expecting to go here. Uh, okay, so there's so much that I like of what you just said. Um, I think it is a, I, I'm going to make an assertion. I, I don't have any type of, uh, education, so I'm just going to make, I can do things like this, especially in today's age. So, uh, I think it's a fact that we are hardwired for exactly what you just said. Um, because, you know, in, if you look at it from a, like you could use the word evolution, but I feel like there's too much baggage with that. If you look at emergent reality, um, it's an absolute fact that we needed to create others at first because of the natural world around us. And then because of the fact that resources became a thing and someone could come over the hill and they could knock you out your entire family and tribe and, and all of that. Um, I think that that's a fact. I think our hard, our hardwired nature is to be that way. I think it, it emerges in interesting ways. Um, especially when it comes to how we are programmed in a way of our knee-jerk reactions and things. Um, I think we are, I think we're hardwired for prejudice. I think we are. I think, and, and I think that that's something we need to think about because um, I like what you said about chaos is order. And I think the world of reality is chaos. And I think once again, if you look at the way the emergent reality of our eyes the world is, does not look like the way we see it. Like the way we see it is almost like a cartoon. Like the world does not exist like that. The world is molecules and atoms and different wavelengths of light. Um, and it's all bouncing around in this unstable and chaotic manner. Because now that we understand quantum mechanics, nothing is ever in one state at one period of time, which means the world is incredibly erratic. Even, yes. you know, birds can see UV rays, but we can't, right? There's a whole different spectrum of things. So our emergent reality was one where it was trimming things away to only what was necessary. And you know what? It's an awfully good shorthand to have prejudice if we're really looking at it. Like, oh, wow, I have no idea what you look like. You look completely different. I should just immediately imagine that you're a threat. But I think what we, our job as homo sapiens, our jobs as beings and the way that I see it is I think that we are unique, uniquely suited for transcendence. We can choose how we think. Our hardware is of what we just said. And I think the interesting thing of the emergence of religion in general is that we have chosen to say, you know, if you want to keep on the Christian you know, tradition, you are an other, but I'm, try I'm going to try to make another effort to look at you first as a friend. 
And if you yes. choose, if you prove otherwise, then there are rules and mechanisms in the way that I can associate with you. We are choosing a different way of thinking because our hardwired is different. So we, we have a different software. And part of what I spend a lot of my free time thinking about is how to transcend that state, mm. you know, which is once again, like, I love Jesus as a philosopher. I think he's a, a fascinating. I, when I, you know, in moments of where I just am complete chaos in the world and I'm like, how the hell did we get to this? You know, how the hell did we get to this situation that we are in in so many ways when it comes to the, the, the climate and, you know, the, the spinning out of control of, of, of government in the sense of, of a shared compact with each other. Um, you know, I, I often try to think of, you know, Jesus's phrase, be in the world, but not of it, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and that helps me not hermit away and, and reject everything and say, like, I, this is toxic for me. You know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't dive into this. I shouldn't watch WWE to see what that is like and what's going on with that world, you know, even though I don't enjoy it or whatever it may right. be. Um, but, you know, it, it's the point is to actually act, actively walk into the darkness, actively walk into what scares you, what terrifies you, what disgusts you, and to not let it change you because you should transcend that moment to understand a further truth or a further understanding because chaos is order. And, yes. you know, Immanuel Kant's perpetual peace mm -hmm. is meant to be perpetual. It's meant to be one where we have to constantly rip apart what was there and actively try to keep something in motion. But yes. the hard thing about it is how do you get something in motion? Yes. It's very difficult. It's incredibly yes. difficult. You know, there's another, I, I like what you had to say there a lot. Um, there's another insight that I take from the late, recently late um, scholar of religion, Dr. Charles Long. He was a phenomenon. Um, one of my real intellectual heroes. I mean, he used to say, you know, you don't really know a book until you've read it three times. And boy, you can't, you can't know his book until you've read it 300 times. He has, I, I highly recommend his book, Significations. Um, it's a collection of his articles. Well, there's a larger volume now too called um, Ellipses. And that's the collection of all of his writings. Um, but it is signs, symbols, and significations, and wait, signs, symbols, and something else in the in the study of religion or something like that. But Dr. Long, who's an African American, um, um, and one of the few who really focused on um, on history of religions, he went that route and went through the Chicago School and helped to even define it. Studied with Merche Eliade, very prominent jo Joachim Ovak, very prominent history history of religion scholars and then helped to really define the school in the United States context. But he, he writes a lot about the construction of the savage and the primitive um, and how that relates to the even the shape and formation and use and deployment of the word civil, civilized. And, and one of the things he talks about, which is it's really deep and profound and I'm, I'm just really lately uh, very much appreciating his thought here is that when we think about a reorientation to the other, um, one of the things that we have to understand, and he works with the concept of the opaque, of opacity. One of the things we have to understand is that everything cannot be apprehended and that the opacity of the other is a limit that I must 
refuse. And he talks about that shift in the enlightenment to uh, a reliance on humanity, on the human and reason and natural law and, and et cetera, that I must refuse, I must refuse to try to signify what I don't have access to in terms of understanding. There is, in other words, there are aspects of people's religion, people's cultures, people's experiences that defy even verbal description, that defy the ability to, to, to reduce it to language. And, and he basically says that modern Western man, and you know, I use that word on purpose, um, it had no checks and balances, had no checks on that, just felt that I think therefore I am, I, you know, I, I can know. And what I don't know, I can signify, you know, through my language, through my discourse, through my concepts, I can signify and therefore mark, contain, criminalize, um, colonize, you name it. And so I, I also really like his insight that opacity, there's, there's a religious quality to it. There's a sacredness almost about what is known, what can't be known, the mystery around it. And that there's something about the opacity of experiencing any other that we have to kind of settle ourselves into, um, that there's a kind of humility and a disposition around accepting the opacity of the other. And I, I just I just had to contribute that because I think what he's onto is something so important that most people coming um, after the enlightenment have no real concept about. <laughs> no, and it's pervasive. Yeah, like pervasive. I, I, I said this, um, I have a friend, uh, Ron Good, he's a tribal chairman of the North, I always like bubble this word, North Fork Mono Tribe in uh, Northern California. Um, and we were, we are, I think it's the latest episode I have up. Um, but we were talking and we were talking about Western European thought. Um, and one of the things I said in response to him is also something I think a lot about. Um, and it's that if you are a member of the Western thought and engrossed in it, something to keep in mind is how inherently arrogant it is. Mm. Um, and pervasively arrogant, yes. I would say. That's exactly, that's exactly what he's talking about. And that's why there has to be a certain kind of humility humility in um, how we approach the other. Even my own um, doc doctoral advisor, Dr. James Cohn, who was a brilliant, well-known um, American theologian, you know, globally well-known. Um, if you go to the Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington, DC, there's a whole installation to Dr. Cohn and his, his contribution to American history and culture, African-American in particular. And um, he would say that the theologian, the biblical interpreter has to proceed with humility, that theology is a constructive enterprise. It doesn't drop from the sky from any God. We as humans construct it. And even as we, we do our work, even as we do our work, we have to realize that theology must remain an open system, 
open to critique, open to revision, open to new reflection. And a great example of that, um, that he used, and I use it when I teach um, on the different liberation theological traditions is from his own student, Robert Warrior, who is a Native American or an Indian um, indigenous um, thinker. Um, he studied with James Cone, but um, really went into teaching in a department of English, which a lot of um, Native scholars will do, um, either become lawyers, and we know why. <laughs> Boy, do they need a lot of lawyers. Um, or go into history or American studies departments or literature departments because their, their theology, their spirituality is in their oral uh, poetry and wisdom traditions and ethics, um, their literature, their, their literary imagination, that's where it is. And so Robert Warrior, you know, raised an objection, even as a student, he published this piece. Um, I think it was called Cowboys. Canaanites and Indians. Dr. Cohn had written about, and other Black theologians as well, had written about, I, I gotta remember the, um, um, the, uh, the, let's see, I gotta remember Canaanites. That's a, that's oh, a great name. Oh, I shouldn't name. be doing this, right? Yes. And Indians, I'm, I'm, I'm here trying to look it up, but um, yeah, I wanted to give you what the what the subtitle is, Cowboys, Canaanites, and Indians, Deliverance, Conquest, and Liberation Theology Today. And it was published in Christianity in Crisis in September 1989. So, um, you know, many of the Black liberation theologians had written about the, the significance of the exodus um, for African-Americans and how important that narrative was as a narrative of hope for liberation for a promised land, etc. And Robert Warrior is sitting there like learning from Dr. Cohen. He's, he's like, but wait a minute. When we take the narrative, not just the exodus event, but the entire narrative, when we keep going throughout the Bible, they're going into a promised land. And guess what? The Canaanites are my people. Like African-Americans at this moment might be identifying with the Israelites, with the Hebrews, but guess who I identify? I identify with the Canaanites. And so he raises this point that where you stand socially, where you're located socially, impacts whom you identify with in these biblical stories. And Dr. Cohn says, wow, even though Exodus has been important for my people in this way, I can never read that story the same way again after hearing from Robert Warrior. You know, so we, we call that the hermeneutic circle in theology, um, you know, um, Hermeneutics is this, um, like, especially like the hermeneutics of suspicion um, that was um, a, a theory shaped by Paul Ricoeur. Um, and what we do when we think about the hermeneutic circle, we ask, what are your sources for the building of theology? And how do you reason in your theological system? And what's the norm? What's the sine qua non of the system? Of what holds it together? Um, if you take it out, it would all fall apart, right? And so Cohn says, my hermeneutic circle has just gotten bigger, right? And it will, you know, it can never be the same. So there's a certain kind of humility, even though we might speak with a certain kind of conviction about um, uh, the prophetic um, role of theology, you must have enough humility to know that theology has to always be revisited for every time and place and, and age. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the last time I was talking to Ron for the podcast, and I, I think I brought it up with you last time we talked to, um, is that this is water speech by David Foster Wallace. And I think a truth that he says in there and, and something you sparked earlier, but I'll bring it up now, um, is that regardless, like it goes 
once again, to the hardware software thing where it's almost like we're hardwired for myth and hardwired for storytelling. Um, and I think the way to transcend that is to recognize it because regardless, you're going to end up worshiping. And then, you know, David Foster Wallace is, a, you know, impeccable example. He says, you know, you're going to worship your own beauty or commodification, or, you know, you're going to, you're going to find something that you're going to end up worshiping in some type of way that if you took that to your point, if you took that out, I all of a sudden don't know who I am. Um, and it's something that I think that we should, you know, in this act of transcendence or to, to, to be, you know, the, the best person we could be is to almost recognize that and use it in some way. Right. So like, mm-hmm. um, like I, I said to Ron, and I perhaps even said to you is like, I try to look at everything as a connected with love and it sounds hokey and it sounds, uh, you know, kitschy and cute. And, and, it, you know, it's the people I play basketball with. It probably surprised them to, to hear me say that. Um, but it's the truth. And it's not necessarily that I believe in a divinity or I believe in that. I mean, I, I choose to believe in it. And the reason I do is because it helps me understand the world and it helps me understand my place in it. Um, and, and it helps me try to find a connectedness to everything that's around me, because regardless if I like it or not, you know, my consciousness came to be because of a series of emergent events that kind of collapsed and collided together. Um, so in, in, in such a way that, you know, how different am I really than anything else I'm looking at? I'm looking out the window to, you know, a beautiful star magnolia tree in my backyard. You know, how different am I truly than that? We both arose from the same set of circumstances and different forks. Um, so it's an act of, of a choice because it, re- myths or things like that do serve a purpose um, and we have to try to be aware of it. You know, it's so interesting that you would say that. I was, it brought me to the work. Do you know the work of Maladoma Somme by chance? No, I don't. He, he's the Gara um, and the, the Gara people um, are from Burkina Faso and Northern Ghana. They might spread out into a couple other countries, but he's um, a Dagara healer, um, some people would call him a shaman, um, priest, um, religious expert. He writes his first book of Water and the Spirit is a really interesting book. He talks about his journey of being kind of kidnapped by missionaries um, into the missionary school away from his village and, um, you know, the kind kind of abusive and rigid, austere education he received. And he really felt abused by that education and finds his way back home and he initiates and becomes um, an expert. He actually initiates into his indigenous tradition, um, gaining the secrets and um, learning the rituals that he needs to, to heal. And he, his, he says his name means um, he who he bef- who befriends the other or the stranger. Mm-hmm. And he, um, it's really interesting. One of my students wrote her dissertation on, well, she was going to write on him and his wife. And then she decided to write on his wife. Well, they eventually divorced because she did a similar thing. Once they married it, she came to America as well. And she really engaged this idea that we are often thinking about, you know, white Western missionaries going to the other, the brown or black other uh, countries and converting. But here we have Africans saying the West, like all these other countries are impoverished and you need our health resources, our education. The West is spiritually impoverished. Americans are spiritually impoverished and you need African indigenous thought and wisdom. That's really, and and he holds these huge sessions, a lot in California, um, huge sessions in Canada, the United States, the Caribbean. um, And he has a lot of white followers, a lot. And, um, 
Dr. He's also he has a PhD or maybe even two, if I remember correctly. Dr. Somme, um, one is from the Sorbonne. Dr. Somme um, says that it is one of his initiations. He had to hug a tree and, and keep he had to hug the tree. Um, and he had to I think he had to have certain a certain vision or, or come to a certain kind of consciousness about his relationship to the tree. Um, and he talked about going back to the elders and telling them something and maybe it wasn't enough and he had to go back and hug the tree or and I, it's really interesting because I was talking the other day to Kola Abimbala, the son of Dr. Wande Abimbala. He's also a doctor and also has a law degree. He's a professor of philosophy at Howard University. And um, Dr. Bimbala, he taught in England for many years before he came here. But Dr. Bimbala um, said to me, you know, Diane, there is, we don't, I asked him, I said, is the word enyan, E-N-I-Y-A-N, is that word, which could be translated as the earth, creation, human, is that word, is there a word that is different for the human being besides that word? He says, we really don't have one. We really don't have a word that distinguishes the human being from other forms of life. I was just like, wow, that is seriously deep to me, seriously deep. So, so I cannot distinguish myself from the tree, that form of life. And one of the things that his father um, says in one of his books, Ifa will mend our broken world and back to scripture, Ifa is the most commanding form of, of um uh, sacred revelation in the Yoruba tradition. It has 256 um, books of Ifa, so to speak, 16 major books and 240 minor books. Um, and each one could be, you know, um, several stanzas of, of poetry for pages to hundreds and hundreds of pages, right? And they all have their different names and things like that. And they've been written down for the past 50 years. But, um, you know, Kola Bimbala told me the other day, Dr. Kola Bimbala, that, uh, you know, with each um, Ifa priestess called a Babalao or a female priest is an Iyanifa, with, but they're usually male priests. With each Babalao that passes away, we're losing thousands of Ifa poems every day. So he's one of the people who's been trying to get the scriptures written down, to get their, um, their sacred um, tradition, um, divination tradition written down. And, um, and so um, his father said in his book, Ifa shall mend or will mend our broken world, that a long time ago in the African mind, humans, plants, animals all spoke the same language. Um, and I think he means by African Yoruba, but I would not be surprised if you find this in other African cultures. They spoke the same language and they used to invite one another to one another's parties. This is one of the stories. And this idea of, you see it in voodoo, the religion that has been most demonized among the African religions. You see it in voodoo culture as well, the religious culture that everything has a kind of code and everything has a spirit. And so you talk about trees, plants, rocks, rivers, minerals. Um, you talk about them almost as persons. They might not be human beings, but they are persons. And what makes you a person is fulfilling your ethical responsibility in the world. And so when you are being called into this, for example, ritual for healing, 
um, plant, you know, this leaf, this plant, please fulfill your ethical responsibility in this ritual, right? Whatever human element is there, please fulfill your ethical responsibility. It's really animal elements, please fulfill your ethical responsibility. So I, I'm very intrigued by the difference between how the human is understood particularly since the enlightenment in the West and in like African religious cultures, which is the, the traditions I'm most interested in, because I'm finding that their concepts of person are inclusive of um, all forms of creation. Um, and that maybe the concept of the human being is even less important than the concept of person because of what it means about relationality, about how we are codependent, interdependent, even transdependent upon one another um, to make sense out of the chaos, um, to kind of put limits on our predatory nature and predatory needs to put limits on it, right? Like the Native Americans are like, or I, some people prefer Indian or Native people or indigenous. They're like, did you have to kill every buffalo? No, seriously, every buffalo? Did you have to, right? There are, there are limits, there are checks. You might kill a certain amount because you need them to keep for warmth. You need them for, um, for writing materials. You need them to cl um, clothe yourself, to what, what have you. But did you have to kill every one of them? Did you have to destroy this species? And so it's, it's that kind of orientation that fundamentally like defines things differently and doesn't give, you know, we talk about the, the, the age of the anthropos, you know, the, of the Anthropocene. Um, um, Anthropocene age, right? Um, doesn't give this, this sacred importance to the human, right? Um, and of course we have a lot of, um, what we call Afro-pessimist thinkers in my field in African-American studies broadly um, that even raised a question about who is the human and the fact that black people are not even accorded humanity. Like they speak of blacks and non-blacks, right? Blacks and humans, like literally they argue that blacks are not even included in the category of humanity in ontology in itself. And it's a pretty darn good argument. <laughs> it's pretty compelling when you, I mean, they really take it back to the emergence of slavery with the Islamic slave trade incursions in Africa in the sixth and seventh century. And, um, and then um, say it continues with Western slave trade in terms of equating the African slash the black with slave, um, you know, like innate slavehood. And that they argue that the edifices, the infrastructure of Western reality um, uh, um, as a result of um, the relationship between Africans, Blacks as slaves and uh, white men as human, that infrastructure is literally based on anti-Blackness. It's a, it's a fa fascinating read. You, you might wanna invite um, someone like Frank Wilderson um, who um, writes extensively. He's one of the great um, um, Afro-pessimist theorists. You might wanna invite him to your show. It's incredible. So yes, so this, you know, I, I am fascinated by what it means to kind of diminish this prideful sense that um, that we are we are different and superior to other forms of being. You're right. We have the ability to reflect on our thoughts and our actions. We have the ability the ability to choose 
in a way that's beyond instinct, or that there's no doubt about it. But as Wandea Bimbala says, um, and, and then uh, you put a grain of sugar on the table and an ant can smell it from miles away, right? And, and we cannot, right? Our intelligences are different. Our strengths are different. So we're all needed in this chaotic experience um, that we find ourselves in. Oh, definitely. And, and I think perhaps, you know, I bet other animals can reflect back on their thoughts. Cause I mean, exactly. Like, Aren't they saying like dolphins can and some definitely. sort of some, some, yeah. yes. And some people, it's some, some animals in the, um, in the kind of, I don't know if it's chimpanzees or mm-hmm. I've, I've heard some things yeah, that yeah. they're, yeah, uh, I think, right. yeah. I think a good example is like orcas. Orcas are actually, do- we call them killer whales, mm-hmm. but they're actually dolphins. Um, and there's certain pods of it that refuse to eat anything other than salmon. They're actually dying off because we're killing all the salmon runs with our dams and rivers, particularly in uh, Washington state, because uh, they have a lot of the electricity is so-called green because it's on hydroelectricity, um, but it kills salmon and uh, salmon are specific to the river in which they evolved in. Um, so there's orcas that they can eat, like there's seals everywhere, but they choose not to because they probably have a culture that's around just eating salmon. Um, it's probably a lot more than just taste. Um, so I, I think the, the interesting thing of humans perhaps is the fact that we can act on that because of our anthropology, you know, our, our anthrop, you know, we have hands, we're in these five pointed stance, you know, kind of like the Vitruvian man kind of thing. We can, we can actually interact with our environment and manipulate it in a way that others can't because of the, the different tools we were given at go. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that what you said about uh, in, in some of these traditions, how they talk about how all animals at once can speak the same language. Ron actually told me a story in, in his religious tradition. It's the exact same, but there was a time that, you know, all, and you know, this is a native, he says Indian uh, religion um, in which, you know, everyone spoke the same language and could communicate. He tells a story of that was passed down from his father of, of this, this medicine woman, if you will, who kind of lived off into the woods with her snakes and uh, how there was almost a way that they can communicate and the way they can, you know, dialogue with each other, which to us seems like fantasy. Um, but, you know, it, it, it also can see it in the ancient world in the way that they anthropomorphize, um, is that the right conjugation? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Of, uh, they put like, you know, uh, eagles with, hum- with heads of, you know, uh, or bodies of men with eagle heads and all that type of thing. And, and what that really signifies is the interconnected and, and interdependence of all of it. Um, which I think back to your point about a lot of these other traditions are more connected than Christianity, which is something you said in the beginning. Um, you know, I, I often muse about that. And, and the place that I've landed is Christianity is, is more of a set of legal practices than it is a set of understanding of your own spirituality, um, because it's dogma and rules in which you're supposed to abide by. But the substance behind it is, is often left aside and it, you're, acceptance and place in this order is by following rules more than it is living a life of true virtue. Um, because, you know, a friend of mine was, was struggling with um, if he should put his kids in a charter school. And he's like, I don't really believe in charter schools, but if I want to have my kid to have the best education, this is the place to go. And I can't, and he brought up a good point. He's like, I can't afford to have homeschooling because that's the option that I would take. He's like, I can't afford it. And I was like, you know, I actually, the way that I always land with ethics is I think ethics are more important where you break them than where you hold them and why you break them. Because the truth of reality is I'm going to do something unethical. I I may lie 
to somebody because I, you know, it may hurt their feelings. Um, or I may, in this case, send my kid to a charter school, even though I don't, I don't support that or any number of things, but it's in the recognition of it and understanding why you're doing it, I think is more important than just sticking by a set of dogmas, which, you know, back to that opacity that you were bringing up, you know, I, I often find the most usefulness in studying other languages is the words that don't translate. Like um, I was, I have a friend of mine, or he's a developer that works with me. Um, he's in New Zealand, but he's from Iran. And he, he used a turn of phrase. I can't remember the turn of phrase, but he used a turn of phrase. And he's like, sorry, if that doesn't translate, it's, you know, I'm translating directly from Farsi. Um, and I was like, no, actually that we have the exact same phrase in English. Um, but it made me think about how it's the words that don't translate, like how the word for consciousness maybe instead of saying life right a, a way to understand it in the language that we use it as it's not necessarily life because we tend to once again associate life with humans um but consciousness like this this is you know something that has its own means even if you cut off a limb from a tree it's going to grow another one it, it there's some type of programming that is getting it to keep mo uh, moving and there's some type of awareness of its environment around it to kind of keep perpetuating it um, and, I, and I think it's in that space that it is most important for us to kind of tr continually try to remind ourselves of it. Yeah, no, that's a good word. That's a really good word. I, I like that. It's true. I mean, I, I do think that, and I wonder if this is just true of religion in general. And this is one of the reasons I think it's so important to have theologians in, in in any tradition who really do the work because they do become legalistic. They do become rigid and dogmatic and doctrinal. They, they really do. And especially with, with new people, when new people enter religion, I mean, they, they're more rigid, they're more religious than any people who have been in it for 20, 30 years, right? Um, I, I think you're right. And we often forget about the essence of the rule or the law. It's just the letter of it. And so I agree with you. I agree with you. And there are many people who live their Christianity that way. And they've been taught that it's the only way to be Christian. And I do think as a result, um, the Christian church um, has lost a lot of people, like the institution itself has lost a lot of people. And this is why even in my field, um, you know, we often say, you know, when we, I was telling you earlier about how theologians um, assess sources, like they ask questions, what is the source of how this person thinks as a Christian, right? What is the source of their faith? And one of the things that happened in the kind of postmodern period um, after World War II, we began to see theologians really branch out and argue things like culture must be a source for theology, right? And so one of the things we often talk about in, in, in Black theologies and, and broader, broader theologies is how important the artists are. Because they're, they're not limited. They're not confined to a dogmatic system or a set of doctrines, a system that they have to operate within. Um, and, and their reflections, and that's why some people really like the mystics, their reflections on the divine kind of free us, free theologians to do things that typical theologians 
don't feel free to do, um, don't feel free to experiment with. And I, I always say, like, where's the artist in you? Where's the artist in your faith, in your theology? Because that's, I think that that's what God actually gives us permission to do and be, to be artists, to be creative, to be innovative, to be thinkers, but thinkers who reflect and express in a way that impact people effectively. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's funny. It's funny, JR, because I grew up, I might've talked about this the last time. I grew up with a dad, you know, Alice Walker talks about her mother's garden. For me, it's my father's garden. I grew up with a dad. Both of my parents grew up in rural Jamaica, rural areas of Jamaica, which is a lot of Jamaica. <laughs> um, but my mom was like, she was not into like farming or anything. Her father was a pretty big farmer actually. Um, but she was just like, oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to school. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a farmer. My dad loves it. Um, my dad, all my life, I grew up in like, urban America. And my dad was growing like what we call Jamaican callaloo. It would be like the equivalent of African-American collard greens. Um, so our Jamaican callaloo, he would be um, growing like our eggplant and carrots and tomatoes. And I tell you, having that experience, because my father, we were doing organic farming. I didn't know that, but he would make us stop playing and come and help him with his garden. And having that experience really, um, that's where I feel like I came to know the divine, like being in his garden, like seeing the color come into the fruit and vegetables. Like I know that there are scientific ways to explain it. I know that, I get that, but that's not how I experience it. I experience it as something kind of mysterious and miraculous and, um, and even with the scientific theories, there's got to be a force. There's got to be a first principle. There's got to be um, um, some sort of creative force out there. And so I see that force as artist. I see that force as creator. I see just the way that creator plays with color, the colors of our universe. For me, color is energy, it's emotion, it's passion. Um, and so that's why I'm a very visual and aesthetic person. Um, and so for me, I like the image of artistry as a way of people thinking about their faith and even their commitments. Because I do understand the artist to, and maybe I shouldn't, but I really do. I do understand the artist in many ways as the way we would understand the theologian as prophetic, as, um, I do understand the artist as having um, a kind of ethical and um, prophetic role to play in, in, in society and social imagination. So yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, um, it, it, and I think what has happened, JR, it's really interesting. I think what has happened is oftentimes we get these revivals, right? We get people saying, oh, the religion is too cold and dead. And so you get the first great awakenings in the 1730s and 1740s. But it's, it's not artistic in that sense. It's an awakening that once again turns back to doctrine. Like it's an awakening that is, yes, there's this kind of aesthetic, charismatic preaching that, but what is, what is the heart of it? The heart of it is to convince people that they should be convicted 
uh, by sin. They're, they should be convinced of their sinfulness and they should accept Christ into their life. So it's back mm -hmm. to doctrine and dogma again, that you have to go through these steps in order to receive salvation. And so that's the heart of it. And the preaching is just a tool. It's just a technology. And, mm -hmm. and, and I would say that what we need is a more artistic, more aesthetic um, expression. And it, you know, to an extent, the, you know, uh, 19th century European um, um, theologian, uh, Frederick Schleiermacher, kind of went that route, like, you know, arguing that the essence of religion is in how we feel. And he talked about the fact that there, there is this utter dependence on God, like some, some thinkers had said it's in what we know you know, like philosophy. Other people have said it's in what we do, like Kant's categorical imperative. But, but um, uh, Steinmarker said it's in what we feel and, 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 and really went that aesthetic mode. So that's what I do like about Steinmarker, part of romanticism and all of that. And unfortunately, uh, Steinmarker, you know, that kind of thinking leads to this kind of liberal progressive um, idea in Christian theology and kind of in some respects led to what we see happening in Germany with the rise of Nazism, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Um, you know, so so you know, there, 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 there can be problems when you said when you end up worshiping yourself as, as human, when you become God, right? There's too much faith and confidence placed in the human. And that led to this kind of backlash with the rise of these neo-Orthodox theologians that said, oh no humans are utterly sinful, but what they were really re referring to, they weren't doing that old fashioned Jonathan Edwards theology, right? Or Billy Graham theology. What they were really referring to was what Hitler had done. And, and we are in deep need of salvation and Jesus Christ is that mediator, right? But what you usually get, so there's, I have a lot of sympathy for the neo-Orthodox theologians because I understand what they were responding to. If you read their writings, you won't necessarily understand right away, but I understand what they were re responding to. But what you usually get is these kinds of, you know, they're called evangelical, meaning the good news, right? Evangelical, um, revivals, like let's let's revive the faith. Let's or these primitive. When you get into um, meaning early, right, the earliest form of the faith, right, you get into institutional kinds of of changes as well. Where okay, now we're going to separate from this Baptist denomination and become the primitive Baptist, the real Baptist, the early Baptist. We follow the early church, right, and then another person is going to, and now we're going to become the apostolic church. We're going to be really like the apostles. We're the ones who are following in the original apostles. So you get all this splintering and splintering all around what it means to ultimately believe that Christ is my savior. Um, I'm saved by the grace of God and that guarantees my life after death. Um, but it's still very dogmatic. It's still very dogmatic. It doesn't emphasize or encourage, I think, the depth and breadth of what it means to use your mind as a thinker, as a reflector, um, as an imaginative um, being. And, um, and that's where I think the arts can help us, um, remind us that, that we're also here, we're put on earth to play, to be artistic, to be playful with our interpretations with um, one another. Not a harmful play, but a play that's, um, I think, um, th that has some sort of equilibrium um, to it, where you get the ball, sometimes I get the ball other times, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love artists' role in uh, 
I'll say reality again, because often it's the, mm. an artist will reflect, you know, in the way that we were saying, um, you know, how uh, gangs or type of emergent behaviors like that reflect the status quo. I would say that artists often reflect what is subversive and what yeah. is present, but not open, right? Like, you know, um, the like founder of stand-up comedy, his name has completely eluded me. Um, but, you know, he did a lot of that when he was getting arrested all the time, you know, because he was saying things, you know, was making fun of the status quo, right? Uh, and what he was, he was, ref he was reflecting taboos that were present and everywhere. Um, and I think what's interesting about that type of cycle is that often the artist introduces something, it becomes the status quo in a lot of the same way that you're talking about how thinking or religion can, you know, become this something and, and it requires a Phoenix analogy again, right? An analog to say that something then needs to come in and destroy it and revitalize it and burn it up and then start itself again. And the mere process of doing that is going to yield exactly what it was destroying yeah. which i think in our present moment and all of this there's a lot of this cultural uproar that we're having right now and true chaos that we're having is another example of that i think america has gone through a lot of cycles of this and we're now present in a, another one that's more chaotic um personally especially as somebody you know i work in ai i think technology and algorithms i'm incredibly worried about because of what it's changing mm -hmm. and how it's it, it's it seems like it's further sucking our I'll use the word soul. It's like sucking our substance and our connection to, to everything and, and our fulfillment further and further and further. Um, and it's, yeah. it's trying like things like not ever being bored, right. Or yes. always constantly being stimulated and, and, and brought to excess. You know, like, I think, you know, I think we, we, the industrial revolution, you know, brought us the age of decadence. And I think now we're That's at right. an, entering the age of excess where, it's, it's constantly just streamed to us and our expectations of that and how it's changing us and unfolding. It's, right. it's, it's ramping up all of the problems further as a solution to them and it's creating this virtuous cycle. Um, but what I like a lot of what you just said is that if we actually understand it in that way, we can perhaps change it. And, and I think an interesting way that by way of, I brought him up last time we talked, ironically enough, uh, John Coltrane and of all people, Mike Tyson, um, I've kind of led to this thought of, um, you know, we all are artists. We are all creating something. If we're creating our own thoughts, sometimes we don't create our own thoughts and we're, we're running off of programming that perhaps was maladapted from our childhood or from some set of experiences or perhaps a dogma that we are entrenched in, but we are all our artists. And really the medium, the canvas is time. It's temporal. And it, just like everything emerges out of it, it is our life is our canvas and it is our choice and how we want to craft that and present that and, and expose that. And subtle. And the way that I look at that is that it engrosses everything from subtle little interactions you have with somebody as you're holding the door open with them or you're, you're talking on the phone with a bureaucrat that's frustrating you. You know, all, all of these different intricacies are just means of you taking another brushstroke to what it is that is your life. Because regardless, back to this phoenixing, if you allow yourself to be grouchy enough because of your circumstances, and sometimes it is, there's nothing to do but to be grouchy and rage against the machine. And that's totally understandable because, you know, there could be somebody with the boot on your neck. It's true. But back to, you know, in the world, but not of it, it's in our, you know, our place of creation and creating our own thoughts and how our thoughts then create our own reality. 
that we should try to be an artist in our moments and in our present time. And from talking on the phone with you, which is a few times of eeriness of feeling like I'm in the right place at the right time because of how many conversations I've had in the past two days colliding into this one. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's through that type of continuing motion and momentum again, that, you know, feed the right beast and feed the right mm -hmm. thoughts and, and perhaps actions will reverberate around you and realities will change. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, I, as I listen to you, I would love to even hear more about artificial, artificial intelligence and some of what you're experiencing, but that would be for me to develop a podcast and invite you. It just, it, I would love to hear more about what you're thinking. As you were saying that, I was thinking, that was the beauty of some of these taboos in indigenous traditions that just because you think something doesn't mean you should do it, right? Just because you think something doesn't mean it's a good idea. It's not a good idea to kill every Buffalo. <laughs> you know, it's not a good idea to build so many dams that the, that the salmon are dying, right? So what, where are the checks and the balances? And so, boy, I tell you, I don't do any work in the area, but I would love to hear more about what you're thinking. What I'm noticing, you know, I've seen it with my nieces and nephew, uh, more so my niece, because she's been living with us um, this past year. Um, and we've talked about it, is that there's such a comfort level. It's, as you said, it's almost like an addiction, right? Where they, the young people think, they, this is just the normative mode of communicating and interacting. Um, and, and she and I, she talks, thinks about it critically as well. She's done things like come off of Instagram and she'll go back on it, but she'll temper herself and things like that. But I, I, I do worry. I do worry. I'm like, you, you young people, you don't date and like fall in love and hold hands. You mean to tell me step one is you, you get on someone's page. Step two is you send them a like, or, or, or you know, step three is like, JR, they're like 10 steps before you can even talk to the person on the phone, literally. And I'm just like, how good is this for your socialization? This is crazy. So I know she's like, no, no, I'm die. It's, um, this is step one, this is step two, this is how it works, you know? In fact, today she asked me, um, she had to go pick up my godson. Um, and so, I, you know, I have a Toyota Highlander lander and you know i i bought it a couple years ago it's a 2018 and it's funny like this is actually the second um new car i have in my adult life and i've been an adult for like 30 right but that's how long i keep cars i mean it would have been probably the third but my parents gave me one of their older cars at one point so i didn't need to buy another one but so I told them I want all the bells and whistles. I'm going to keep it for 30 years, okay? And so I'm, I protect it well. And she's so lucky because, I mean, she's just driving it left and right because I just broke down. There was nothing else I could do. I just had to let her use it. So she's like, um, you know, my friend that used to, I was talking to the other day, um, he wanted to meet up. We might skate. He's got vaccinated. I, you said I need to have more interaction with, with friends of my age because I've been cooped up with you and uncle all this time right and I was just like go you know because you, you you know go yes please go just yeah go you you need that please interact <laughs> yeah you know be, yeah I'm just worried you know oh, I'm, I'm incredibly concerned yes yeah. no take, I take take the car you can do it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah yeah my wife and I talk about this all the time you know we, we don't have kids we're gonna we'll have kids eventually um but I mean it's something that I'm 
incredibly concerned about. With boys, I'm concerned about pornography. Um, and with women, I'm concerned about image. You know, like uh, the Instagram, I mean, like Instagram's algorithm is intentionally skewed so that it is selecting for attractive women that are showing parts of their bodies. Um, and, you know, it, it'll serve those up. And the thing is that all of these algorithms are meant to hack our hardware to our, our point, right? They're trying to, it, it is intentionally crafted to hack your hardware to keep you most engaged because the purpose of these apps is not to show your travel log. The purpose of the apps from the position of the apps is to keep you there as long as they can. Because mm. the longer you're there, the more that you will be engaged, the more they can serve you ads, the more likelihood you are going to get those ads. But even more so, the more likely they are to serve you the next thing that you're going to like. So artificial intelligence is all about confidence scoring. There's different, different, there's different ways you can weight it. I'm, I'm grossly over exaggerating or doing it, but I'm doing it for a degree of, of, of understanding. And it's what it's essentially doing is it's guessing how much do I understand what is happening and how much will I get it right next? That's essentially the basis of artificial intelligence. And in the context of social media, what it's doing is it's guessing what can I show you that is going to shock you, excite you, or engage you. And you know if it shocks you and excites you, you're more likely to post or tag or comment, which means you're more engaged, which means you're more likely to get other people engaged within your social circle. Right. So now all of a sudden you're sucking them into it, which then gives the algorithm another chance to keep them engaged and on the platform. So all of these feedback loops are, they're attacking our hardware um, and they're attacking it for a means, you know, the, the, the documentary, the social dilemma is, is great. It, it really gives you a nice overview of kind of what's happening. Um, but I really, this is this, you know, it, it's ironic. Um, my brother is bringing his kids over this weekend. We're all going to hang out. Um, and he was like, oh, should I bring, should I bring the Oculus, like the virtual reality? And I was like, no, leave all the devices at home. And he's like, what? I was like, no, no, seriously. Like, don't let the kids have their switches. I was like, no, no, no. We're, we're going to have a weekend where we're not going to have any of that. And he was like, you don't have that? Cause like I'm in tech and everyone just assumes that I'm engrossed in it. But the reality is, is that when I'm done with work, other than when I'm producing music, I don't use a screen. Um, like I told this to him, I was like, I don't own a TV. He's like, what? You don't own a TV? I was like, no, I try my best not to, to watch TV and not to go in there because, you know, I find myself if I start watching Hulu before you know it, I'm like hours have gone by or I'm, you know, like I'm spending my free time thinking about what's happening in a show. And it's like, what life am I living in? Am I living this, this fantasy? And, and if I am, why am I doing that? Oh, it's probably because I'm underslept and I'm overworked and I'm looking for an escape, right? And I think that to your point of comfort is that we live with way too much comfort. If it's comfort in never being bored and always stimulated, if it's comfort in, I turn the faucet on and I expect there to be clean water. If it's, you know, in the fact I'm in a warm room um, or if it's that everyone has to agree with my ideas and the way that I see the world, right? Like we can create echo chambers because once again, to that virtuous circle of, I post something that my friends can see it. It's self-selecting to whatever you already agree with and whatever more they can get you to agree with. Or the scary thing is what they could get you that's suggestive, right? Like QAnon to me is an incredibly fascinating mm. story of how people are trying to find meaning in a world that has left them behind. Right. Um, right. And, you know, I, I think religion goes into it. I think you can look at QAnon as a religion without any doubt. You know, it has people who are 
prophets in a way and people who are they're acting in an incredibly similar manner and and to me that is because it has self-selected a group of people online in which is created a, a an audience to then have other people that can step up into the fold and say this is the meaning in the world this is the other this is the reason for your lot in life and you know this is the way out um and you know like i i like i like the tao Te ching a lot like the, the tao the way it, you know taoism um, and part of the reason I like it, I transform it into my own way. I like appropriating. I think as, as cultures and humans, we, we appropriate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's what it is. Um, and, you know, like, just like, what is that uh, uh, imitation is the sincere, most sincerest form of flattery. I think there's a lot of that. Yes, That's truth. Yes. Um, but in Taoism, you know, Taoism, the Tao is, is translated, you know, as the way, like a proper noun, the way. I like to make it more improper in the way of saying a way. Right. Like this is my way of seeing the world, my philosophy, my, yeah. my reality, the way I see it. And I think if you look at it that way and you impose that type of analog, you can understand QAnon as yeah. their way of trying to see the world. But yeah. my personal fear, um, and I think David Bowie in an interview in 1999 actually says it best, is that the internet is fracturing us into different echo chambers. And my concern with that is what becomes normal in those echo chambers from social norms and development, like what you just said, to like images of self, you know, in the, in the way that I say about, you know, like, how do I view myself? What is considered pretty? What is considered wanted? Um, and it, it's going to further, I, I think it's an inevitability that it's going to further fraction us, fractionize us. And we're going to almost become different people and different cultures and different ways of viewing ground truth going yes. forward which is yeah. incredibly concerning well I'm, I'm glad that you you shared all of that with me because i tell you this world is new for me and it's because of the book um black women black love america's war on african-american marriage um, my first public facing book that i wrote that i got into social media at all i mean to be honest i did open a facebook account maybe 15 years ago, um, just to monitor what my niece and nephew were doing at the time. And I never went on it. And so I just kind of made it real once the book was coming out. And you know how it is, your production team, they tell you, you know, get on at least one social media. So I did that. I did Twitter. And then my niece was like, you've got to do Instagram too. The thing, it's almost like I'm experiencing it as a, as a, as a researcher as well. Not that I'm doing any real research, but it is fascinating me the things that people will say the things that they they share like why, why would you even waste your time to even hit send on something like this what really this is the only form of entertainment you have you can't find something to do with yourself it's unbelievable so one of the things I never do I never just talk I just refuse to do, I, re, I refuse to talk through technology in that way. I will find a human being in my life to talk to. You know, like people on Twitter, they just make comments. And I'm not gonna lie, sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're sarcastic, they're interesting, but I'm talking about, not even about like some major political thing that happened, right? Just things about culture or their lives, their children. Why? I, I don't understand that. Why am I cultivating a relationship with all these people that I don't know through technology. And if it's because I need it, then that's sad. That is, that is, not, that is not what we need. We need you to not need it. Um, now, I know it can be helpful for things like, oh, let's stay in touch 
as a family. And it's been nice, especially during COVID. I've had a, quite a few deaths in my family. Um, in fact, my first relative died from complications uh, due to COVID in Jamaica not too long ago. And Sorry it was just that. great. Thank you. It was great to get the whole family on board through social media. And it was really, really good. So, you know, keeping up with one another and things like that, where you already know people, right? These are your family members that you're communicating with. But this kind of way that people like they're living their lives they're living their social lives through these technologies i i i don't i have a deep aversion to that i don't understand it and i just have a very very deep aversion to it it often begs the question of which is their real life yeah. and that's and that's mm-hmm. the part that really concerns me so um, my grandparents had a really out, outsized hand raising me. And my, my wife actually says this all the time. She's like, you know, I know your parents and I often wonder who raised you. And she said, she, my, my grandfather passed away when I was in high school. Um, but when she challenged that question to me and it made me think a lot and uh, I reflected back on this and I, I meditated on it. And I came to the realization that my grandfather is like, it, 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 is, I, it is striking to me when I really think about it. It makes me a little emotional even saying it, how much I am almost so much like him like mm, the yeah. way that okay like during covid i never not didn't wear a button up you know what i mean like uh <laughs> that i was always getting dressed right, right. uh the way that i methodically go about things right. um the way that like uh you know like my 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 mom and dad had my brother as a my oldest brother the first in our family as an accident it wasn't meant to happen they there's a set of really unfortunate circumstances when everyone kind of found out about it mm. and how my grandfather reacted to it, to my mom. So he was my dad's stepdad. Mm-hmm. So how my mom's mom reacted to it was he pulled her aside and said, I know you're angry right now, but you're going to go for a walk with me first. Mm-hmm. And he would do that. Yeah. Like if people would like, you know, and this is an incredibly stressful situation. There's a lot of yeah. emotions flying. And he took the hand to say like, no, I'm going to go take you for a walk. And we're going to yeah. talk about what this is first. Yeah. And he would do it all. He did it with me when I yeah. uh, stole some cigarettes from him and he found out. Uh, you know, like, you know, there's all these different things. And what it is getting me to reflect in my own life is how, yeah, I am a millennial, but in so many of the ways I reject all of this is because of the fact that I was raised on a farm for several years with somebody where we had to contend with things that most of people my age wouldn't have had to contend with, right? Um, Like a storm is coming, we might lose the power. That means we're gonna have to get things ready in case we can't, you know, walk outside because it might be too raining and too windy and debris might be flying you know, like all of these different types of things, but it's gotten me to look where I feel like an alien mm-hmm. on social media. So I definitely look at it in that way, but it almost makes me feel like I'm straddling this world that is in a lot of ways dying, which is a different way of interacting with each other, a different way of connecting with each other. And then this new world, which is emerging, which is one where you see me in person, but my real life is somewhere digital. Yeah. And it really makes me worried for where we're going to go Indeed. and Indeed. what we're going to allow to happen because of a sense of difference that we don't see in the real life that mm. we see. In, and by real life, I mean, like, see, it's difficult for me to say this because it's all reality, yeah. but I mean, like physical, right? Like mm-hmm. I can touch you, like what yes. we're going to allow in that space if I can touch you yes. concerns me. And in the same ways that you brought up how that that theology can lead to Nazism is in the same way that I am concerned about this, which is why I am very concerned about compliance of ideology. Yes, 
Yes, indeed. Wow, that's a great last word. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll have it and say there's, you know, parent parental love is essential, but grandparent love is special. There's nothing better than grandparent love. <laughs> definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and I would I would I wanted to actually focus this talk on uh, technology and things like that. So perhaps mm -hmm. next time we can we can talk that if you would grace me with some more of your time. Oh sure, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'd love to. Yeah. yeah, it was great. I'm gonna stop the recording. Thank you so much for talking with me. This was incredibly. Oh, yeah illuminating and full it. of wisdom. I, I enjoyed it. I tell you that not watching TV is serving you well. If you'd like to know about episode drops, check out our episode catalog, find ways to get us on different streaming platforms, or leave us a comment please reach out to us at bandwidthpodcast.com.